You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for what else but the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I hope you know what you've gotten yourself into on the front end. Clicking on this podcast, listening. I see you, fam. But today is May 2nd, 2022. It is also episode 383 of this podcast. And that was Proverbs chapter 14, verses 33 to 35 in the English Standard Version. Righteousness exalts a nation. I think a great many of us believe that, and a great many of us don't really know what to make of that. And I think a good chunk are openly hostile to that. Sin is a reproach to any people. We don't want to hear that. No, we want a kind of anything-goes, Book of Judges approach to doing what is right in our own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel, Judges says. And that also, I think, more than just talking about there being a human king, like let's say King David or King Solomon, I think that also is to say that God was not regarded as Israel's king in those periods that are talked about in Judges. And what is it that happened in the book of Judges? When Israel went whoring, that is the word, whoring, great word, scrabble word, but only in the right company. When Israel went whoring after other gods, the gods of the nations around them, what did God do? God gave Israel over to be oppressed and ruled over by her enemies. Judgment came on the nation. Now, I don't believe in, I don't subscribe to a view of collective justice and collective guilt and collective punishment that punishes the innocent with the guilty, the righteous with the unrighteous. God does not do that. Think about Abraham bartering with God for righteous Lot who lived in Sodom with his family And he says to God, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And God doesn't challenge him on that. Now, there's a little bit of semantics there, I think. (laughs) There's a little bit of interplay where God can be as clever as anybody ever could be. And he figures, oh, well, I'm still going to destroy the city. I'm just going to get Lot out of it first. And we'll just see how righteous his family turns out to be. His wife is going to turn back because her heart was in Sodom. She turns into a pillar of salt. And some of us today think that's really rather harsh. God, why do you have to be so severe? But the deal is that her heart was always going to be in Sodom. And she would take Sodom with her wherever she went. 
And God was trying to destroy what had made Sodom the way that it was. He didn't want it escaping. He didn't want Sodom going elsewhere out into the world and being exported. And he certainly didn't want Lot taking Sodom with him in the form of his wife. And so God judges not only Sodom, but also Lot's wife. But Lot is delivered. And we look at Lot in that situation, we think, man, how can it be that it is said of him that his righteous soul was vexed daily? Look at his manner of life. Look at the fact that he was there in the first place. How could he stand to live there? Why didn't he leave on his own? But sometimes these things are complicated. And so also in our day where we live in a country which has not believed for many decades that righteousness exalts a nation. We just haven't. You can't tell me that America has believed that righteousness exalts a nation for as long as Roe versus Wade has been legal, for as long as infanticide has been legal, which is 50 years next year. 2023 marks five decades. So all my life and 15 years besides, Roe v. Wade has been, as they say, the law of the land. And it was not a good judicial ruling. It just was not. The Supreme Court is not actually supreme. God is supreme. God is sovereign. God rules over all, and he has not changed his mind. Hands that shed innocent blood are on the short list of things that he says he detests, things which are an abomination to him. He hates. We say that God is love, but he hates hands that shed innocent blood. And our country has shed 60 million babies worth of innocent blood. And we've done the most barbaric, cruel, heinous, awful, ugly, evil, detestable, sinful, wicked things to our own children who we have allowed to be murdered in this country. Think of all the people who have trouble getting pregnant, who have trouble with fertility, who would love to adopt. And think about how expensive adoption is. And then think about how many unwanted children there are. You mean to tell me that murdering those children in their mother's wombs was the best we could come up with as far as what to do with unwanted children? Children being unwanted is a terrible problem. Absolutely. But for the love of all that is good and decent and true, give those children to moms and dads who want to be moms and dads, who have some children, but they're not able to have any more children, or they've never had any children because something's just wrong. Something's off. Something doesn't work because we live in a fallen creation and our genetics just don't do what they once did when the race was younger, when the world was younger, when the fall had not worked its way through all our systems and all of creation to the extent that it has now. Give those unwanted children, those 60 million unborn babies, to moms and dads who want them. Because we know that there are moms and dads who want them. But what have we done? We've aborted 60 million. And one party has said that the right, as they say, the right to abort your unwanted child is sacred ground. It is holy ground to them. The other side, the other party, 
is, as it has always been, as it has been since the days of Abraham Lincoln and the emancipation of black African slaves a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, it is the case, it has always been the case since the inception of the Republican Party, that certain moderates are just as bad as the opposing party that is pro-slavery. They can come up with any and every excuse you could imagine to justify dehumanizing people who get in the way of their self-actualization, their comfort, their prestige, their honor, their selfish desires. We definitely have always had, ever since the days of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, we have definitely always had Republicans in this country who would rather cut a deal and line their own pockets, pad their own wallets. They would rather make a deal than do what's right. And unfortunately, they are brothers to those who destroy, like we talked about in Proverbs chapter 18, just yesterday, in yesterday's episode. Proverbs 18. The first one to state his case seems right until the other comes and examines him or questions him until he is cross-examined. But it also says in that same chapter that a man who is lazy is a brother to him who destroys. And I'm sorry to say this, but people who are committed to doing nothing will never run out of excuses to do nothing, to continue on doing nothing, to being self-indulgent, to being lazy. They will always find an excuse to be lazy. They will work very hard, in fact, justifying their laziness. And so what you find is, let's say in the case of this story that just broke from Not the Bee, covering a piece in Politico, exclusive Supreme Court has voted to overturn abortion rights, draft opinion shows, and I quote, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Justice Alito writes in an initial majority draft circulated inside the court, end quote. If that ends up being true and it comes to pass, and Roe v. Wade is overturned, in fact, then we have some hope and prayer that righteousness will once again exalt this nation and that this sin in particular will cease to be a reproach to our people. And I hope and I pray that very much. And I will argue forcefully, and I would. I disagree with Doug Wilson on this one. I know he was part of the pro-life movement when I was in diapers. And he saw that there was the potential back then for a civil war, Civil War 2.0, over the question of abortion. That's why he wrote uh, what is now in its latest iteration, Black and Tan. Great collection of essays, by the way. I respect his opinion. I disagree with it. I differ with it, but I can respect it. And I hope it succeeds. I hope he is correct, even though I'm not so sure that he is. I actually would fight a civil war. I think it is worth fighting. I think if we can't fight to defend innocent children from being brutally murdered en masse by the tens of millions, then nothing at all is really worth 
fighting for. There really isn't ever a just cause if you can't justify a war to protect the unborn. But alas, that's neither here nor there. That has not come to pass. It has not happened that there was a civil war fought. I would fight one, but there hasn't been one. And that's as well may be. But what we have is we have the Supreme Court behind the scenes, Republican conservative appointed justices of the Supreme Court, potentially having voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. And you can hear in the background, just for any of you unfamiliar, you can hear our newest edition. He was born the end of January. We have eight kids. And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you just flat out one of the biggest things that inspired me to say, let's be content however many children we have. One of the biggest reasons was that I was appalled when I found out what abortion actually is. What is abortion actually? When I saw images and I read the statistics and I saw the stories and I read the stories and I heard the interviews of what abortion actually is and what it does and how much of it there has been protected by law for the past five decades, albeit I was a bit younger when I found out than I am now. When I found that out, I said, you know, there's just something terribly, terribly broken about the attitude that we have in this country towards our children. Even if we don't get an abortion, even if we have children, there's something terribly broken about our attitude towards children that we would content ourselves with abortion being legal with anyone's children in our communities, in our towns, in our cities, in our states, in our country, anyone's children being murdered with impunity. There is something very broken about our view of children that we shrug at that. It is to our disgrace that this has taken so long if it is about to be overturned. But if it is about to be overturned, then God be praised and let there be a revival and let it begin with us. Now, the pro-choice people will say that pro-life folks like me, in order to be consistent, have to be pro-life about more than just not murdering a child. And to that I say, absolutely. But do you know what that means, pro-choice advocate, pro-choice activist? Do you know what it means, what you're saying? Now, very often I've heard the the pro-choice crowd say, Well, that means you have to be against the death penalty for hardened criminals. And to that I say, well, no, actually being pro-life has me wanting to put a very stiff penalty on anybody who takes life in murder. It is because I am pro-life that I believe that somebody who is a murderer, especially a multiple offender, repeat offender, murderer, forfeits their life and they should have their life taken from them as a just punishment. And someone will say, well, you're a Christian. Shouldn't you be for mercy? Mercy is for the repentant, for one thing. And also, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the government's job, by God, God God-given, the governing authority, read Romans 13, can't get much more Christian than the Apostle Paul writing half the New Testament. He says that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, and that he does not bear the sword for nothing. 
Well, that right there tells me that the governing authority is a kind of common grace for both the just and the unjust. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian is really beside the point. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God is really beside the point. Whether you worship God in spirit and in truth or you worship some other false God or you worship no God at all, it's really beside the point. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. He does not bear the sword for nothing. Our government is in bad need, sore need of reform and overhaul according to fixed principles which are transcendent, which are immutable, which are inalienable, which are universal, which are to be known, not to be shrugged about as if we can't possibly know them. The state of nature is what you see when you turn on Shark Week and you see the seal ripped in half by the great white. The state of nature is what you see when you turn on National Geographic and you watch a pride of hungry lions take down a zebra. The state of nature is what you see when you're watching YouTube videos. And here comes one about a troop of chimpanzees who come storming into the territory of a neighboring troop and start ripping their males, their females, and their babies limb from limb and then eating them up in the trees. That's the state of nature. The state of nature is not a purer, better, more wholesome, more holy condition for us to live in where if we just liberate ourselves from every standard of goodness and righteousness and truth, then we will be our best selves. Then we will be able to self-actualize. No, 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 no. The state of our sinful nature requires that we need a savior, we need God's grace, and even common grace. We need his special grace and we need his common grace. And one of the ways in which God's common grace expresses itself in a nation which is to be blessed and exalted is when that nation's governing authority as a minister of God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. The sign that you live under a curse and under judgment because your nation has rebelled against God, has turned its back on God, is wicked, the sign that you live in a nation under judgment is when infants are your oppressors and women rule over you and when your government rewards those who do evil and punishes those who do good. When your government is more concerned with protecting those who murder unborn children in the womb, protecting them, rewarding them, subsidizing them, praising them, and is more concerned with silencing anyone who would say an untoward word about it or call for repentance? Because that is violence. Tearing an innocent child from its mother's womb, that's not violence. But you telling someone to repent, that's violence. Woe to us. But this says righteousness exalts a nation. And for all my life, for all my life, abortion has been legal in this country. And for several years, I have been writing and arguing that that needs to change. 
It was a bad call. How can it be? How can it be that if the mother goes and gets an abortion, that is a right not to be questioned, not to be challenged. But if we can presume that the mother wanted her baby and she gets in an accident or else she's murdered and the unborn child dies with her, we count that as a double homicide. How is that? How does that work? How is that possible? It's insane. It cries out for consistency. It cries out for correction and justice. And what we might just find is righteousness, justice. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That justice being done in this regard has a ripple effect outward. Now, who's to say, who knows how the Lord might use your family or my family if we say, here's what God's word says, and we're going to live according to that. And we will enjoy the blessing and the fruit of that. And then we do, and then we say, and we explain, and we testify to the goodness of God. And we say, he was right. He promised these things, and he was right. And he's always provided for us. And yes, we haven't always been sure what would happen. Welcome to the desert of the real. <laughs> but we've trusted the Lord, and he has provided for us, and he's protected us. And we've not been destitute. And actually, we're quite happy. Thank you. You know, who's to say that your family or my family, if we've pursued that, hasn't contributed to overturning Roe v. Wade, if indeed it is about to be overturned? If Casey versus Planned Parenthood is about to be overturned, who's to say that us writing, speaking, podcasting, sharing, believing that this needed to be corrected didn't help? You know, the naysayers, those who were slack, said, it's just the way it's going to be forever. Yeah, it's awful, but there's no sense in getting all worked up about it. We need to be more concerned about X, Y, and Z. And it just so happened that everything that they wanted to be more concerned about was also all about them and very self-serving. And they said it couldn't be done. And they shrugged like, well, I think you're just wasting your time. I think you're wasting your breath. I don't think it's ever going to change. And besides that, we're probably living in the end times, and it's just going to get worse and worse. And the sooner it gets worse, the sooner Jesus will return. And so <clears throat> these things must come to pass. And all the while, they conveniently forget what Jesus said about woe to him through whom these things come to pass. You know, it's one thing to say, well, this is just the trajectory and this is what it's going to be. It's quite another thing to actively and passively bring that about, to make excuses and to say, oh, it's just the way it has to be. No, it doesn't have to be this way. No, no. Over my dead body, does it have to be this way? But what if actually seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness all these things will be added unto us. What if actually, surprisingly, and it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it is a surprise to those who thought they needed to gain the whole world, even if it meant forfeiting their souls. What if actually the counterintuitive is that righteousness exalting a nation means that it's God who fights for us? What if righteousness exalting a nation means that 
yes, our generation is in trouble because of what previous generations have done, but our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Just, just a figure of speech. The number isn't important. The big idea is a lot. <laughs> and it really isn't about cattle, first and foremost. Cattle is just a stand-in for wealth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything, all of it. And the very heavenly-minded, so heavenly-minded, in fact, that they're sometimes of no earthly good, they'll say that such talk is white nationalism and imperialism and just a lot of excuse-making for those whose minds are set on earthly things and carnal things and fleshly things. And to that I would say, you need to read your Bible more and grapple with the entirety of the story of Job, for instance. Consider the fact that Abraham was a wealthy man. Consider the fact that God does give his children good gifts. Consider the fact that when Jesus returns, which you're always reminding us of, he will have the saints ruling and reigning with him forever. Forever. At a certain point, you're going to have to let go of this idea that there's something untoward and unspiritual and ungodly and dishonorable about Christians ruling and reigning in any form or fashion. It's inherently selfish to speak of justice and say, well, this should be corrected. To talk of governing authorities needing to reward those who do good instead of punishing them, needing to punish those who do evil instead of rewarding them. You say, grace, grace, or you shrug. And what it sounds like to me is a lot of cowardice. Sounds to me like godlessness and wickedness. Sounds to me like Job's three friends, sometimes, who saw their friend suffering. And so also those who have been calling for repentance. How many of us, what if the curtain is peeled back in kingdom come and God shows that his saints who were testifying to righteousness, who were being persecuted for righteousness sake, would have actually been very, very successful if not for the wicked having been given a free hand. First and foremost, by God, and God is not at fault if he allows us to be tried and tested. But also, what is to our fault is when we say nothing and others are being led away to the slaughter in our midst. When we see them being persecuted for righteousness' sake and we take an active or passive part in it to save our own necks, to save our own skins, even affirming it, because we're hoping to get favor. Proverbs is full of warnings against siding with the rich or siding with the many against the few or the one in legal disputes. You don't side with the rich against the poor because you're trying to earn favor with the rich. You don't side with the poor against the rich because you're trying to get access to some of the spoils of war. One of the Ten Commandments is not to bear false witness against your neighbor, and yet I hate to say it, but a lot of very respectable people for decades in this country have made themselves establishment figures by selling out those who are calling for repentance and saying, it can't be done, you're wasting your time, and you're making us look bad. Please just be quiet and go home. You're making everybody uncomfortable. And that, that is a sin that we will rebuke. But the sins that you're trying to correct and call repentance for no, 
We don't know how to do that. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. And it's important to remember here that whoever the president is, and I happen to think that Joe Biden cheated, and I think a lot of people on his side cheated because the truth is just not a value to them any more than innocent human life is a value to them. It's a means to the end. The end ultimately for them is destruction, but what they really want is to worship the God of their bellies, the God of their stomach. I think that Joe Biden cheated, and I think the left cheated, but I also think that Judgment Day is nigh, not just for them, but for the whole country that has allowed this to happen, even hoped that it would happen, even made excuses when it happens. I think that judgment is nigh. And actually, interestingly enough, if it brings us to repentance, it is a mercy. It's a, it's a false choice that we would either get mercy from God or we would get correction. When the fact is that a correction that brings us to repentance as a people would be a great mercy. In fact, that's the only hope we have because if we don't repent, we will surely be destroyed, like Sodom. The church in America needs to stop making up new things, newfangled things to repent of, new obscure, weird psychological sins to confess and to go correcting one another for. We need to stop that. And we also need to stop stubbornly refusing to repent of the sins that God says are sins. Why do we do this? Why do we make up sins? Oh, you're making people uncomfortable. That's not very loving, and so therefore that's a sin, so therefore you should apologize and repent for that. But the actual sins, the actual blatant disregard, disobedience, for when God said do X and we did Y, we did not X, and God said do not do Y, and we did Y as often and early as we possibly could, and proudly, and expected to be applauded for it, even through parades for everyone who did why, <sighs> that somehow became in some people's minds the only real sin you could be guilty of as a Christian is to judge. Thou shalt not judge. No, read the rest of it. Read the whole thing. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall so help you God. He says, with the same measure that you judge others, it will be meted out to you. Judge not lest you be judged is not the same thing as judge not, full stop. Judge not lest you be judged is the equivalent of people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Don't dish it out if you can't take it. Don't be a hypocrite. But what else does Jesus say in the same place? Why do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But the establishment folks who have made themselves wealthy and famous and powerful and important and well-liked, even especially in the church, have done so by telling half the truth and trying to shout down the other half, trying to bully the other half into silence, into obscurity, marginalizing, bearing false witness, implying ugly, awful, wicked, evil things, how much sooner could we have repented of abortion, mass murder, 
of our unborn children, the shedding of innocent blood by the tens of millions, how much sooner could we have repented if not for blind guides who swallowed up the course of our paths? But again, if this is true, if this is right, if this is valid, that this is in fact going to happen, what it should teach us is that when I or you speak up for the truth and we say this is what is right, when we live according to that, when we do endeavor mightily by God's grace to take the plank out of our own eye, to not be hypocrites, when we do that before God and man, no, it might not change everybody's minds and no, it might not fix everything overnight, but you know what? It might just change someone's mind and if it changes that guy's mind, maybe he changes another guy's mind. And maybe it causes a chain reaction. And maybe what happens is that at the end of the day or the year or the decade or a lifetime, righteousness exalts a nation. I'm not audacious enough to suppose that I write some articles years ago about abolishing abortion and this is what comes of it. But boy, howdy, does it put a pep in my step to think that if we pursue truth and goodness and beauty and seek to embody those things because we love God and we love our neighbors, we love ourselves, it might just bless our nation. It might just bless our children and our grandchildren. By God's grace, God may bless us and we may endure and have a good life and a good future. There may be hope. You know, I was thinking the other day about the prophet Jonah and how the prophet Jonah, he preaches repentance as begrudgingly as possible, as, as begrudgingly as you could imagine. God tells him to go to Nineveh and to tell these sinners to repent or their city would be destroyed. And he books passage in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want to preach repentance to the Ninevites because he doesn't want them to repent because he does want them to be destroyed. Hmm. How's that for love? How's that for your tolerant, open society, your pluralistic state of nature? Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Book of Judges type vision for the perfect society. Very loving. Yes. Oh, yes. You know, what if, imagine this. What if God actually does exist and he actually is going to judge peoples and nations and he will actually destroy the wicked? God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And we're not just talking momentary, temporary, blink and you're gone type judgment. We're talking eternal torment judgment. Because this is a holy and righteous God, after all. Who's to say that he's wrong? When you start thinking about how bad must our sin be? How good must he be? And how bad must our sin be? And how much the worse our comprehension, our appreciation of the truth and goodness, that we so underestimate how serious our sin is. But then a wonderful thing happens where God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach repentance or else the city will be destroyed. But if they turn, if they do repent, then he'll spare the city. Jonah books passage the opposite direction. God sends a great storm 
And the very serious, very smart people who weren't there, but are very sure, just absolutely positive that this couldn't have happened, will say, oh, it's just kind of silly. That's just an allegory. Yeah. Maybe you're an allegory. Do you actually believe that God exists? Or is God just an idea to you? I think he's just an idea to you. I think you're actually godless. You might want to th- think about that. You might want to take, have that, have that looked at. <laughs> it's like somebody with a strange mole on their face. And they're just like, oh yeah, this, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's gotten a little bigger, but I don't know. It's probably nothing. I think it's face cancer, actually. You should probably get that looked at. Sorry. Sorry to be insensitive, but that could be serious. But basically, (laughs) Jonah knows why the storm has kicked up. He knows that he's in rebellion against God. He's disobeying God, directly disobeying. He tells the sailors, and they conclude that it would be better for you to be thrown overboard than for us to all die. That seems like a better idea. That seems like a better plan since it's your fault that we're in this trouble in the the first place. We just throw you overboard. So they do. And he gets swallowed up by a giant fish. And someone could say, well, ah, it just doesn't seem very realistic. I don't know. How does that even happen? What kind of fish was it? What size and shape and color and species and how old was it? And how would he live in there? And how would he survive? And And all the while, they seem to be forgetting that if God did create the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days and rest on the seventh, the task of creating a fish to swallow Jonah after having caused a storm to kick up would be pretty small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. I'm just saying. If you if you find <laughs> Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish, a great fish, if you find that incredible, go back to the beginning of the book, Genesis. It's really going to blow your mind. But God causes Jonah to be spat out on the shore. Jonah goes in begrudgingly, probably looking the worst for rare, preaches repentance anyways, against his wishes. Doesn't really want to, but God wants him to. So you're doing it, Jonah. And wouldn't you know it, the Ninevites repent. And Jonah pouts because he didn't want them to repent. He wanted them to be destroyed. Jonah is upset with God. Oh, I knew you were going to do this. I just, ah, I knew you were, I knew you were going to do this. You know, it's almost like the surly son with his elderly parent. Like, ah, why do you always do this? Ah, man, it's so embarrassing. Why can't you ever just do the right thing? Such a dangerous place to be. Mindset-wise, attitude-wise for us, when we're talking about God, talking to God, not a great place to be with regards to your parents either, but it's a really, really foolish place to be with regards to the Almighty, who knows better than we do. But the point of all this is that if there is repentance, if there actually is, and quite frankly, I just I, I mean this, if if it has to take the form <clears throat> of a South African born billionaire buying Twitter and firing every man Jack, no pun intended. The founder's name is Jack Dorsey, by the way. So be it. If uh, 
Repentance for this country, restoration and revival for this country, has to take the form of CNN Plus falling on its face, being completely a failure within a month of launch. Everybody who was working towards it being successful, being laid off. Okay, good. That's good. If Walt Disney Company, as much as I grew up on Walt Disney, and I have loved Walt Disney movies, Walt Disney movies pretty much are my childhood. And it makes me unhappy. It makes me sad and a little bit brokenhearted to see what Walt Disney Company has become now. But if Walt Disney Company needs to be destroyed to save our country, that would be better. You know, better that we lose an eye or a hand than our whole body be thrown into hellfire. If conservatives and Christians are able to actually speak freely and bring accountability and wisdom and correction and cross-examination of the first to state his case, share the gospel, make disciples, pursue the full measure of Proverbs 14.34, righteousness, exalt a nation. Through these kinds of changes, who knows? Who knows what a blessed future we might have ahead of us? Really, really, truly. It's exciting to think about. It's very exciting. I got to leave it there, though. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I wanted to record an episode. The notification hit my phone. I hadn't recorded one today. I'm back in the office tomorrow morning, so I don't know that I'll get to record one tomorrow. But I wanted to record an episode tonight, get one out about this fantastic news. I'll throw a link in to Not The Bee, which itself has a link to Politico. You can go read more about the story here. Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Samuel Alito drafting a majority opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Check it out. God be praised if it's true. I certainly hope and pray that it is true. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.